When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Shake the Dust was a poem written by an artist who desired to give dignity to people on the margins, the ones who were easily overlooked and whose stories are mostly unaccounted for. It was a poem meant to encourage all of us to embrace the stories we've lived. It was a poem meant to encourage all of us to embrace the stories we've lived and to make better sense of the worlds inside and outside of ourselves. When I heard it, I fell in love with poetry for the very first time. And the poet responsible for this piece of art, whose work sings just as beautifully on the page as it does on the stage, is Anis Mojgani. He's probably my favorite poet in the world. Not only is Anis a two-time National Poetry Slam champion, winner of the International World Cup Poetry Slam, and a multiple-time TEDx speaker, he's also an Iranian-American originally from New Orleans with a passion for processing the human interior. He gets the tension of holding both resilience and inclusivity in the words that we say and the art that we choose to bring into the world. Anissa is an awesome new friend of mine and a fellow accomplice in seeing the world for what it truly is, an opportunity to hold tremendous grief and tremendous joy at the same time, inviting both to have a seat at the table while trying to make a sense of the mess. I am Brandon Harvey, and this is Sounds Good, the weekly podcast where we have conversations with inspiring people who are rejecting cynicism and using their lives to make an impact. I'm pumped about this conversation, but before we get started, I want to make sure that you stick around for the ending of this episode to hear Anise perform one of his most inspirational pieces of poetry. It was the poem that hooked me on Anise, and you're not going to want to miss it. Okay, with all that being said, Let's just jump straight into the conversation. Here we go. So I was trying to figure out how I first came across your work or even your name. And I was just kind of, I was processing through that for myself. And what I would imagine is many people, the very first time that I encountered your work, your poetry was through To Write Love on Our Arms. You performed uh, at Heavy and Light, which is a big annual event they do. And you performed one of the poems that I would imagine is the most iconic, Shake the Dust. Yeah. And from that moment, I had a deep connection with poetry. I was like, wow, this is amazing. <laughs> and so I'm just honored that uh, I'm getting to talk with you today. This is so fun. Well, thank you. You and I just went across the street and got some Pips Donuts. Got some Pips Donuts. These are delicious. They are. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> though, uh, no though, more just and... I don't know how much longer you're in town, but if you have the opportunity and you haven't yet gotten a donut from Rocking Frog Cafe. Rocking Frog? I've never heard of this, and it's I'm a, a donut professional. It's a, it's a tiny cafe like over on Belmont, and uh, I don't know if I should be. You know, on one level, you're sort of like, uh, you don't want like the the things that like are, are, are throwback to yesteryears of changing cities to like get caught up in the change, but then you're also like, but... You also don't want them to go away, so you like want people to like yeah. throw their money at them. But like at the end of the day, like folks that make kick-ass donuts should just people should know that they make kick-ass donuts. And um, yeah, Rocking Frog, like it's kind of in the similar manner of Pips in that it's just sort of like simple donuts mm. takes like five ten minutes because they go back and they make it right then and there, wow. toss in the fryer, it comes out, and they just have like four or five simple ones, and it's it's so freaking good. It's my favorite donut in. In Portland, like that's uh, great. Yeah, it used to just be like this little stand called Moody's at the Moody's. back of Rocking Frog, and we used to go there like a few times, ten years ago or so. And and then Moody's closed. And then when I returned to Portland, I was like, somehow it I, it, it came onto my radar that like Rocking Frog had taken to just making these donuts. I was like, oh my god, man, they're so close to my house. Yes. That's so good. So you get the chance. Good Rocking Frog. I'll do it. We were talking about this before we started recording, but you've been in Portland for two years now. But before that, you were in town for how long? I, I first came to Portland um, not with the intention to like 
stay longer than maybe a few months. Um, but I, I, I first moved here in 2004. Mm. Got here Halloween Day, 2004, and uh, lived here that first stint until January of 2011. Great, great. Down in Austin, spent five years there, came back here, coming up on two years ago. Man, okay, so so same city, but we totally miss each other. We were in the same city at different times. Yeah. But I first found out about your work through um, not the same city, but through Tourette Love and Arms and the, the fine folks there and Jamie Twerkowski. And I saw you perform via the internet at uh, Heavy and Light. How did you first get connected to the fine folks at Tourette Love and Arms? Um, if I recall correctly, Jamie sent me a message on MySpace. Oh, that is the best. I was probably friends with you back on the MySpace days. <laughs> this was, uh, he'd sent me a message. I think it was like, because let's see, the first Heavy and Light that I did was, I think it was 2010. Because I, I feel I have a memory of having a visit down in Austin. So I, I wasn't yet living there, and, and I had seen his uh, his message. So like, he'd sent, yeah, he dropped me a line like 2009, 2010 about, um, uh, I, I I have this organization, try love on our arms, and um, it didn't, re- you know, I wasn't familiar with the organization, yeah. and sometimes I get random emails from, from random folks of varying degrees of, like, some things are very intentional, like, yeah. hey, here's this thing that I'm doing, uh, I'm, I, I'd love to talk to you about participating, and sometimes it's just sort of like, hey, here's this thing I'm doing, it'd be great if you, you know, and it's just sort of like, <laughs> just some... Some guy, like, you know, in his house, you know. And so it, it didn't really, like, stay on my to-do list to kind of, like, get back to him. And I, he probably wrote me again. And I was like, oh, what, what is this thing? And like I said, I, I wasn't familiar with To Write Love in Our Arms. But it uh, jumped out to me as something that was um, in line with things that, that I try to align myself with. Mm. And was curious about it, you know. And it, it seemed like an interesting experience uh it was a paying gig and so like i went to that first one and got introduced to um a community of people that i remember at that time feeling like oh here's here's like some people and like an audience of people that are all kind of like tapped into not the exact same stuff but kind of like a similar direction that i felt a direction that felt very similar to the community of poets and artists mm. that I had aligned with. How would you describe that direction? Um, one that was like seeking to, if not necessarily change the world, assist and help and change people's mindsets inside mm. that world. You know, allowing folks to mess up, mm. allowing folks to hurt, allowing folks to look at their pain and their troubles and their challenges. And uh, not hide from them, not be blinded by them, but nor not to be hindered by them. Mm. And in the poetry world, uh, within the slam of like spoken word and and uh, poetry slams, you know, like anything, there's varying degrees of like why why people do uh, contribute to like whatever form of creativity and, and, and community they, they align themselves with. Um, but it, it was something that, like, the folks that I was friends with and had rallied myself with within uh, Slam and Spoken Word were people that were, were of that ilk, you know, people that were writing and creating work that spoke to, uh, to their hearts, both on the days when, like, their hearts are, are bruised mm. um, or broken or shattered and also speaking to the days in which like those hearts are large and powerful and 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 moving through those cracks and then taking that you know what you've created for yourself and like sharing it with others so that they don't feel alone in all that and and that was something that felt very similar from from my experience to write love on her arms that it was like oh here's these people that are like working to do that mm. and here's this this room full of people that like i don't know who the hell any of these people are i i assure you no one in this room knows who i am um so i think there's maybe like one or two people like i like i remember when i came <laughs> on stage there was like a couple of folks where it was like these woos that was like that's a woo from somebody that like knows me um <laughs> so it was like you know maybe there was like one person in this yeah. room of a thousand and so that that was also exciting to get to kind of like you know share work with people that 
were not necessarily familiar with me. Yeah. Not necessarily familiar with my work. And getting to like uh, share that with them. Um, and just icing that it was like, you know, sharing it with people that seem to be in similar places yeah. that my community and my audience outside of Trite Letter Arms was, was aligned with. Yeah. So and, and it was also pretty cool to just kind of like, oh, this is a this is a music show. You know, like yeah. all right. This is something different for me. But you, you know? opened up the show, right? Yeah, you were oh, the first see, one out on stage. On on that night, I can't remember how the first one went because I know like there was some where uh, I did stuff like throughout. Like I, I I did something at the start and then like something in the middle okay, yeah. and sometimes it in. But it was definitely like you know this element of you know usually I do a show particularly at that time. Yeah, and it's like it's all poets. You know, and yeah. it was like, I'll be sharing the stage with like six or seven musical acts. And then somewhere in there is like some poetry. And so it was <laughs> like, here's a bunch of people in the audience that might be like, poetry, what's what's going on? Um, but it was rad. I mean, the very first poem that I ever heard from you, which I believe you performed at this event we're talking about, was Shake the Dust. Which, is this one of your most like it, biggest it name pieces? Yeah, I would say that it is. And what I love about it is that it speaks to this idea of inclusivity and resilience. Does that sound accurate? It does. And I think that this community of To Write Love in Arms, which is really a community of people who are rallying together uh, in the midst of mental illness and anxiety and depression and so many other things and standing up for people who feel silent, I think it's a really beautiful poem that, yeah. that well, thank you. has the power to connect people. I feel like that is actually a theme that seems to be pretty common among a lot of your work is inclusivity and resilience. Is that an intentional choice to create these things that when you're listening to it, when you're hearing it, when you're reading it, it makes your heart kind of pump knowing that you feel a sense of connection with this thing. Is that an intentional choice or is that just something that's coming from you? I think it's a mix of both. Directly speaking to say just like my creative process is not one that necessarily... I think, all right, I'm going to write something about this today, mm. and I sit down and write. Like, m- anytime I try to do that, those are the pieces that usually don't get finished. Yeah, interesting. Like it's, it, it, for, for, for me, the creative process is very – why I, I enjoy it and it calls to me is because it gives me the opportunity to have a direction to walk in but not necessarily knowing if I'm going to stay in that direction yeah. or what I'm going to find at the end of that. Uh, it gives me the opportunity to learn about whatever's going on inside of me. It gives me the opportunity to explore those spaces, to discover new things, things that I might like, things that I might not like. You know, um, And so having like a, a, a clear-cut decision like, oh, I'm going to write about this thing, about this topic – always proves very difficult mm. and challenging for me. But an element of kind of like creating a space, I think, that allows for whatever is sitting in me to find its way out. Mm. And I think and believe that I'm a person that those things are very, very important to me. You know, specifically speaking to say like inclusivity and resilience. Um, you know, I come from a place uh, of being raised that that speaks to that and allows for that. And that was always very important to me. And I think, um, you know, any of the good things in me come from that. I've said to folks in the past, like, the religion that my parents raised me and my siblings in, the Baha'i faith, one of the things that traveled with me through, and, and continues to travel with me, like, you know, through my life is uh, this, this, this idea that uh, humans are created inherently mm. noble. And for me, that rests inside of me, always. And, you know, so depending on, like, where my headspace is, where my heart space is, on any given time when I'm going to write, that may take the reins more more forcefully. It may not. That is definitely, like, the place where my heart sits. That's that's the river that it sits inside mm. of, that, that idea. That's that the foundation. You know, very often, work that I am creating will always return to that. Even work that may not necessarily be that, like, obvious or work that is like that apparent on on the surface like simply the act of me and others simply the act of saying like all right i created this thing that at times is very personal speaks very highly to my own individual vulnerability to my awesomeness 
to my sorrow, um, to my tininess, all those things, whatever I might be writing as I process a myriad of different stuff, after creating it and sharing it to somebody else, that act in itself, I think, is something that says, like, I feel these things because I'm human. And, like, chances are you feel all these things Mm. at some point because you are human. And maybe you know and you recognize that. And but maybe you don't, because unfortunately, a lot of us, you know, have been given a path in this life that doesn't allow us to spend time with ourselves, that Mm. doesn't allow us to uh, spend time with the things uh, that that are difficult about being a person. So, you know, I, I think of the art that has spoken to me over my life. And very often that was art that reminded me that like, oh, there are other humans in this world and there are other humans uh, that feel things similar to how I feel, mm. both on my, my high days and my low days. And so, you know, that act of engaging with artwork that simply like speaks honestly to that is something that in itself will always, I think, uh, allow for inclusivity mm. and resilience. That's a really beautiful way of putting that. And it does. Very long way of putting no, it. No, I love that. I was engaged. <laughs> but it, it reminds me of this idea of we connect far more with each other's weaknesses or imperfections than our strengths and our successes. Yeah. And I think what you do and what, what poetry at its core is, is it is zooming in on these depths within us and then putting pictures and imagery to these ideas. And of course, yeah, like why wouldn't that be connective? Because that's something that is embedded in all of us. Yeah. You know, we were talking about this before the podcast started, but there's, you know, there's nobody that like there's there's nobody that's like every day is awesome. You yeah. know, even though that Lego movie song Everything is Awesome is fantastic and I love Chris Pratt, like the reality is none of us are like, yeah, this is like everything in life is great. Uh and that's what this podcast was I thought it was going to yeah. be in the beginning uh, is just like this, like, Oh, let's just have conversations with all the people whose lives are awesome. And the people whose lives are awesome on the outside, oftentimes that comes from a place of learned resilience because yeah. of the difficult things that have happened in their lives. Well, With shake the dust, it's, a, you know, folks will have, have sometimes asked me like, you know, do you get tired of performing? How many times you've performed? You know, like I, I turned 40. It's a poem that I wrote when I was 22 23. Um, I wouldn't write that poem in that form at this, at this juncture in my life. You know, just like I have a different relationship with my writing and my Mm -hmm. aesthetic as, as an artist and, and those, those things. But, you know, I still have a desire and a calling to like share this piece. Um, you know, because similar to what you were saying that like no one goes through their whole life without, you know, like some things you learn and you like carry them. Hmm. And it's like, oh, this is always the case. You know, like I learned, I learned how to do this thing. Boom. I don't have to like learn this thing again. But like we always have to learn how important we are. Yeah. You know, like, you know, there are days when I feel like amazing and unbelievable. And I like know the vastness of like my incredible being, you know, and just like there are the days when I'm like, am insignificant and I am unimportant. And not that those necessarily are like bad things, but like inside of that, I am also tiny and worthless and fucking up and pathetic and pitiful. And, you know, and it's like we all engage with that, you mm-hmm. know? And so it's like there's not a shelf life for me you know, to say this poem of Shake the Dust, you know, that it's not like, oh, I wrote it and so like now I'm good to go. Yeah. You know, I wrote it and anyone who hears it is now good to go. You know, it's (laughs) like we all need those reminders. You know, we all need, you know, that pickup. We all need that thing that says like, yeah, you know, like today maybe my heart is a little dull, but I need something that reminds me that there were those days when it wasn't dull, just like there are going to be days when it's not dull. And just because it's dull today, that dullness doesn't define like what it actually is. Mm. Um, so it's not something that like, it doesn't have a shelf life. You know, you're, 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 it's something that you constantly have to be reminded of. How did you get into poetry in the first place? Um, first place was I took a creative writing class my last year of high school. Hmm. Um, 
I had always engaged with uh, visual arts prior to that and was heading off. Where did you go year. to school or where did you grow up? Sorry. Grew up in, in New Orleans um, and uh, went to Benjamin Franklin High School. It was back in, I graduated there in 95. And um, the following year, I was going to be going off to, to art school. So, like, art was definitely something that was very present in my life. And my last year of high school, I had space on my schedule. So, like, I took a bunch of classes, mostly art-related, and one of them was, was creative writing. And there was a poetry component to that. And it just sort of kind of, like, opened up a gate into, like, another field that I didn't yeah. know was, like – next to and connected to the field that I'd primarily been roaming in um, with drawing and painting. And, and it was like, oh, here's this whole other thing to explore in, in the same landscape, but that's also different and new. Yeah. And um, huh. it spoke to me. And the next year, gone off to school in Savannah, Georgia, and I took a poetry class sometime that year. And it definitely kind of like anchored it down that this was something that was important to me to engage in on a consistent basis, both as like uh, a creative exploration, but also as a way of just processing my interior and uh, got, got introduced to the existence of spoken word and um, poetry slams and didn't get to necessarily like participate with with those, at least not the not not the slams, but it was something that kind of like uh, my introduction to those like sparked something in me that was like, oh, I really want to see what it's like to to share work mm. out loud, out of my mouth to ears, and I want to write work, you know, that I then can can do that, and I'm I'm curious about that, uh, and so that was like around the same time as well. Okay, so a minute ago you you talked about this idea of like we don't all have the opportunity to, you know, process our feelings or our emotions or, or the things going on in our brains. Uh, and you've been fortunate enough to do that. And it sounds like even before the world of poetry, you were involved in art. You know, what in your life growing up allowed you to have that space to be able to pursue those things? Because I feel like, yeah, I mean, in some ways it's like a Maslow's hierarchy of needs thing where it's like you can reach a point of like self-actualization and that kind of thing to be able to, uh, to be able to process these things. Uh, but the other part is, you know, having people in your life who are encouraging you yeah. and supporting you in, in pursuing the arts rather than, you know, encouraging you to do, you know, any other thing. Yeah. What was that support system like? Yeah. For you then? I mean, like I'm super, super grateful for the place that I come from and it's definitely like a privilege, you know, to have grown up in a space um, in a household with parents that, you know, neither of them were, neither of them are artists, so to speak. I think like there's different, uh, at different times in their life, they've definitely had a relationship with their creativity that was allowed or not allowed hmm. to manifest itself perhaps like as, as much as they may have wanted. I, I don't know. My pops is, um, he's a civil engineer and he's, uh, he's from Iran. And like the hmm. joke is that like, you know, if you're Persian, you basically can only become an engineer, a doctor, or a lawyer. You know, so it's like, <laughs> it's not like a culture that's like, screw the arts, but it's just like, it's not something that, you know, and by and large, like, most cultures are, are, are not ones that are like, no. yeah, make art. Well, just I mean, step into that. You know, like, that, <laughs> but that, that's the place where, like, my pops, pops was. So, like, any artistic inclinations that he had, um, which, which, you know, from over the years, I gather were present. It was not something that to, to like uh, seriously, seriously invest yeah. in. Uh, and my mom has always done stuff with books. Uh, she had a children's bookstore when we were growing up and then has been a librarian at different levels of, of education, like ever since she um, uh, left the shop. Mm. And um, But they both, especially my mom, I think, were very supportive of ensuring that me and my siblings uh, had creative outlets mm. and had art in our lives. You know, whether that was like trips to the museum, whether that was taking a pottery class, you know, like that, that it was something that was not something to be kind of like turned away. Uh, but like, oh, you know, a niece has a, a desire to draw, you mm. know, that like that's not something to like, 
stop doing that. Yeah. You know, like, why are you doing that? Why are you wasting your time? It's time to put that away and do this other thing. What an encouragement to have people who recognize that and then support it. You know, and so so there was always support with that. That's great. And there was never, not one conversation that I ever had with them, you know, when I decided I want to go to this small art school in Georgia to study comic books. There was never a conversation that was like, are you sure this is what you want to do? Do you want to consider this? What are you going to do mm. once you're done with school? You know, like n- none of that was was the thing. You know, I mean, like I remember when I was, uh, for most of my childhood, I wanted to be an architect. And like I was just consumed with architecture. And, um, uh, and then when I was like 12 or so, my mom had read this article about SCAD, this this art school yeah. in, in Georgia. And she was like, oh, I read about this like, pretty interesting sounding like art college uh in georgia <laughs> maybe maybe that's something you'd like to explore. I was like no i love I the wanna... mom voice in the situation <laughs> by the way and i was just like i don't want to be an artist i'm going to be an architect and design buildings and cities and stuff you know and like you know so it was like something that had been offered and given to me in this manner that was before even like i really had truly, I think, considered and invested mm, that, you know, yeah. and then, you know, five years after that, that ends up being the the only school that I apply to wow. and, and go to, you know, like they were always super, super supportive of, you know, I mean, like my sister studied public health, you know, her undergrad is in near Middle Eastern languages and anthropology. My brother, his degrees are in theater, you know, I mean, like, you know, it, it was never anything that was like, you need to be making serious consideration decisions about your life. You know, it was always like more than just the art aspect that it was. I feel like I'm talking a lot. I apologize. No, I mean, um, <laughs> you know that your name is on the title of this podcast. <laughs> I'm just going to talk for 60 minutes straight and then take this headset off. Um, <laughs> I mean, I'm not opposed. <laughs> Sounds great to me. Um, but like more than just like the art aspect, like I've spoken and talked about this in the in prior, but like that my parents, whether they did this with a plan or conscientiously or just were like, that's just how it how it happened from like their parenting styles from being individuals like, how do you do raise a kid? I don't know. (laughs) Um, But that like, you know, it was a household that allowed us to be comfortable being ourselves. Mm. Um, And there was like plenty of times as a kid that I was not comfortable being myself. Like, you know, it's, it's, it's definitely like weird. You you don't even have the tools to process. I think, you know, when you're eight and like, you know, your pops is Persian, but you don't really know what that means. And you know, your mom is black, but you don't really know what that means. So you definitely don't know what it means to be like both those things. Mm -hmm. And that like, you know, you don't seem to act like, your Iranian cousins and you don't speak Farsi and you definitely don't look like any of the black kids in your neighborhood and you don't like see the black side of your family very often, if ever. And so it's like you just kind of like grow up in this place where you're not quite sure what you're not sure about, you know? I was like a tiny, tiny child, just a weird kid. Like all kids are weird, you know, like spending time in your imagination, you know, and I was like, pretty loud and outgoing, but then also very, very bashful. Mm. Um, you know, so there's, there's a lot of space where you're not sure about yourself. And a lot of times uh, and most days where you, like, feel more awkward than less awkward. But you also, you know, are in a household where that's not necessarily, like, a thing to concern yourself with. Mm. So, you know, definitely was given the space to just, like, you do you. And you figure that out. Do you feel like you were in the middle of a lot of cultures then? Because you're in the South. You're in Louisiana, which is, you know, definitely an experience of its own. Uh, you're probably also still surrounded by white folks in some respect. But then you've got this Iranian side of things yeah. and then the black side of things. Was there a time where you kind of transitioned over into uh, trying to be more aware of, of what that meant for you and kind yeah. of what that experience was like or was it just something where you were given this gift your whole life of you know not needing to figure it out in your home so you got to transit I don't know what does that look like it it was like different things you know definitely was like you know growing up 
I didn't necessarily feel Iranian, but I definitely didn't feel black. Hmm. You know, that felt like a very foreign entity almost to me. You know, I mean, and it's like, you know, I walk down the street, I engage with a conversation with somebody, you know, it's going to be like, yeah, you see that black guy that just walked by? You know, like, that's not going to register with anyone. And um, the neighborhood that we lived in was primarily black, but like most of my friends from school were probably white. It was a pretty diverse and mixed uh, Mm. school. But then we also had... Uh, you know, separate from from that was like the Baha'i community. And the oh, Baha'i yeah. community was one that was like very, very diverse. You know, it was like a lot of adults, a lot of kids, white folks, Persian folks, black folks, just like folks with families, grown people that were like partnerless, just like a pretty diverse thing to like grow up inside. Yeah. And it was also like removed from the other components of one's world, you know, where it's like, You've got, like, your life, and then all of a sudden, like, you go to this Baha'i thing, and there's all these people. Mm. And they're all, you know, it's like, I mean, I, I remember going to sixth grade. Uh, my best friend was this guy, Peter Becker. And uh, I'd go over to his house and hang out with Peter and his younger brother, Christian. And um, their mom's name was Penny. I always called her Penny. Growing up, I never called any adult Mr. or Mrs. Mm. Blank. And it wasn't like a disrespectful thing, but like that's just not how I was raised. Totally. Because in the Baha'i community, it was like all the adults, we called them by their first name. Yeah, a deeper connection. Yeah. And so there there was diversity of age as well. And so there there was like this like world where it was kind of like, not so much that it was like colorblind or anything, but that it was the Baha'i faith sits on tenets of unity. And so the, the beliefs of... Uh, one human race and that there's unity in diversity, uh, that women and men are created equal. All these things like, you know, were given to me as a child and you just sort of like absorb them. It's like, oh, okay, that's how it is. But you're you're also not, that's not the reality of the world. And so you don't even necessarily, I think, as a child, know that there's something to process, which is like, oh yeah, you know, it's, 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 because it is something to process. Um, you know, I think particularly like as a mixed race kid growing up in, in New Orleans, you know, New Orleans being a really mixed place that's also situated in the South and is also very, it's very different than a lot of the South, but it's also very Southern. So I don't know, like all the stuff with kind of like race and where I came from was something that was removed from me it was almost sort of like this thing that was kind of like in this ball that was spinning outside of my body Mm. and that it was like I didn't know that it was really traveling with me and then at some point there was certain you know I remember trying to figure elements of that out you know I remember in in middle school I guess I was like 13 or so I guess I'd gotten a gift from somebody I feel it was somebody maybe like in the in the Baha'i community who was black had like given me like a Malcolm X hat. There was like a period in the mm. in, in, in in the late eighties where like Malcolm X got really, really big. You know, like all these like Malcolm X hats, Malcolm X shirts. And I, I remember like pumped about this hat, but I also felt weird wearing it. Like mm. I didn't know if I was like supposed to or allowed to. But I couldn't really even really figure out like why I felt that yeah. way, I think. And then when I was I guess I was probably like 19, 20. Like sometime in, in the midst of my college years, I found myself at a place where I felt really, really low. I was struggling a lot with, you know, you're transitioning into being more of an adult and less of the person I think that you have been raised as. Mm. And I, I, you know, it's not like I was like doing all this crazy stuff. It's not like I was like, yeah, I'm just going to like slut it up and like snort (laughs) cocaine and like rob people. You know, like (laughs) I wasn't doing anything, you know, like, but there was like this element in my head that was like, I'm, I'm effing up, you know, like I don't feel like I'm as good as this, this faith, this religion is that I was raised in. Uh, that I that I practiced, that I believed in, you know, that it, that it wasn't this. It, I was like, this thing is good, so everyone associated it must be good. Hmm. And I don't know if, you know, I feel human, you know, was essentially what it was. Didn't realize that that's what it was, but it's yeah. like I feel bad, and I must be the only one because everyone else must be good Ooh. because like they're part of this like really good thing, and um, 
I went to this thing in Maine, one of the um, Baha'is in Savannah, Georgia, uh, a black gentleman, this older brother named um, Michael O'Neill. Uh, there was this thing that was happening in Maine and started happening called the Black Men's Gathering, which essentially was men of African descent, either Baha'is or connected to the faith in some way, would congregate for a week in <laughs> the blackest place in America, Maine, and um, <laughs> Uh, for a week of like lobster rolls, exactly. Just <laughs> we just go there for the lobster rolls. Um, we'd we'd hang out and we'd pray and we'd sing and we'd talk trash and play spades and eat and heal and learn and figure out how to be, mm. so that we could best and better serve our communities back home. Um, as 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 black men, and Mike was like, "You got to come to this. You got to come. You got to come." And so finally, I was, I was I was able to go, and and I went, and that was a really big thing for yeah. me. I think a lot of the stuff that I was going through was stuff that was connected to just not being certain or sure, like what what I am or what I was mm. or what could I claim or what was claiming me, and. It really started opening up the doors to allow me to, you know, find my way into what it means to be uh, an Iranian American and mm. what it means to be an African American, and you know, th- and that's a process that like is 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 still malleable and organic yeah. and like changes and you know, like like some of the stuff I alluded to earlier, like it's not something where it's like every day I'm like, yeah, I'm completely comfortable, you know. <laughs> And it's not uh, even being like of African descent in a, a, a body that, like, you know, looks like mm, some ambiguously Eastern Asian, maybe like Hispanic dude. You know, like, <laughs> um, it is still a process. Were you using poetry as a mechanism to dive into this and to deconstruct this? Mm, a little bit. Not a, not a whole. I mean, like, I, I definitely like wrote poems that, like, spoke to that. It's a thing that. I've never felt like I've really fully been able to like crack open mm. what are the things that I want and desire and need to write to regarding race and my race yeah. and my heritage. Um, there's things that surface up. There's things that bubble up and, and come out onto the page. And particularly, like, it's been a lot more present in my writing or at least my inclination in my writing over the past few years, just like, you know, largely due to the current state of this country and the more vocal dialogues that have been happening in this country. But yeah, it's it, it was present, but it wasn't like really huge. Yeah. There was definitely like, I think I think a lot, of the poems that usually would come out were written speaking and addressing the the conundrum, the question, mm. the, the, the thing that I was experiencing as being like, what does it mean to hold two races in one set of hands? And that idea of diving into the question is almost more interesting than the answer. Because you well, can't give somebody the answer. I can't give somebody an answer, but like it was definitely like at that time it was more about what does it mean for me to be mixed, to hmm. be biracial. And I think more the thing that I'm in, interested in writing these days with regards to race is just simply like what does it mean to be black in America? Hmm. What does it mean to be Iranian in America? And not that it's not like... Of course, my lens of that is going to be through this lens of how those two things merge yeah. in me. But like before, it was like, how do I deal with this idea of like having two heritages in me? And more now, it's like, how do I deal with being the heritages that I am, mm. uh, particularly in this country? Wow. Correct me if I'm wrong, because I'm coming at this from you know a straight up white dude perspective. But it seems like that's something that we can all be kind of asking ourselves is like my experience as you know historic identity my racial identity my whatever identity you know how does this resonate in the time we live in today yeah and i think that by asking those questions and those have certainly been things i've been asking myself it allows you to actually do something with that and uh yeah it's tricky you know you and i were talking as we were eating donuts right before this about politics and so much of your work is hopeful but you also live in this dichotomous time of like 2017 uh, <laughs> being a difficult time to be a person of color in general, yeah. a person of you know Middle Eastern Persian descent, black, the whole, 
the, the as, whole as I say in one of my one of my <laughs> poems, I say I, I, there's a line where I say like you know I'm born to an Iranian man and a black woman, so like born under two bad signs, you know, like <laughs> to be black in America and to be Middle Eastern America these days is like. All right. I, I, I won the lottery. You know, like, mm-hmm. um, it definitely behooves everyone to step to the table of themselves. And particularly in this country, because, like, this country is rooted in, I mean, like, it's rooted in a wealth of, like, atrocities that we do not speak of, you know, and we do, do not grow from. I mean, like, last week I was in, as, as I was saying to you, I was in Eastern Oregon for this um, thing called Fish Trap. And, Fish trap is rooted in the West and writing of the West. And it takes place on Nez Perce tribal lands. Mm. And and so there's a there's a lot particularly this year, there's a lot of conversation and dialogue about the native community in this country as a whole. And so it, like by no means is is like singularly like the plight of the black person in America like the only like ridiculousness of the of, of this country's past but like we need to like as i said like sit at the table of ourselves and figure out what it is that like who we are mm. um both in regards to like our racial identity and our heritage and what is that relationship to america you know i mean like baldwin say something about like the destiny of the whites and blacks in this country are are intricately intertwined this is something that cannot be like figured out and rectified, um, you know, the plights of people of color. Yeah, we're all bound the, the, together. The struggles of people of color, the, the, the struggles of Native Americans, you know, like, the, like all those things cannot be, like, unlocked without, you know, white folks coming to the table as well mm. to figure shit out. I feel like so much of your work has this deep sense of hope within it. And I haven't heard as much of your work or maybe any of your work from 2017, your most recent stuff, you know, whatever you're working on these days. But judging by past experience, I would imagine there's still a sense of hope. Where do you find hope in the midst of that struggle and and within the midst of that, you know, ambitious plan for the future? It's both very easy to do such, and it's also extremely difficult. You know, I mean, like, these days are really hard. It's terrifying the days that we live in from a multitude of onslaughts and you know i mean like i remember after election day like i didn't get out of bed until like one in the after you know i usually get out of bed at like 8 a.m you know i would just lay in bed till like one in the afternoon for like i don't know a month two months mm-hmm. you know my therapist i was talking to my therapist at that time and, and she was like are you depressed i was like well yeah you know i mean it's like <laughs> You're reminded every day that, like, we live in a country that is fucking crazy and just seeks to gaslight every person that lives inside of it to make us feel that we're the crazy ones. And the people that we literally hire to, like, run it aren't running it. You know, I mean, like, this, I, I pulled the news today and it's like, Republicans seeking again to like figure out this healthcare thing. It's like, yo, man, like y'all spent Obama's entire presidency fighting this thing, and like now you've spent like the last six months fighting this thing that no one wants you to fight against. They want you to like make better, you know. And every time you like fail at like your intent to get rid of it, as opposed to being like, all right. Well, maybe we should learn from this and, like, see what we can do to progress towards, like, hold on, guys. We're coming back in a couple weeks to see if we can't fuck you up. You know, like, and so it's, like, every day there's just, like, this onslaught of stuff. Everything's horrible. But that's the thing. It's, like, we all know everything's horrible, you know? And, and so it's, like, it can be really difficult. But I also don't know how to not – I don't know, even know if, like, hopeful is the world, but I, I, I don't know how to, like – move through my life in a manner that keeps me laying in the mud. Mm. You know, like I've had parts of my life where that has been the case and it isn't good. Yeah. You know, it doesn't give me anything. It doesn't give others anything. And, and it's fine to lay in the mud, you know, like it's not like every day I'm like, Oh, it feels kind of bad. That's all right. (laughs) I'm hopeful. 
You know, it's like, uh, things are bad. That's all right. You know, I'll make, I'll make a positive spin on this. You know, it's like, because that's the thing. I don't, I, don't, I don't feel like I engage with the world that's like trying to put a, a positive spin. I, I, I hesitate to like try to seek to find silver lining and stuff. Like, yeah. it's, it, 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 you know, I think like a lot of the way in which our society shapes us is to kind of like have it be this either or thing. Mm-hmm. You know, that like when, when you're feeling low, you're not supposed to feel low. You're supposed to feel good. So you got to do what you can to feel good. You got to try to find the good in all the bad stuff around you. And and to me that doesn't work. That's a lie. What works is to recognize like, "Oh, I have tremendous sadness and anger and grief inside of me." But that doesn't mean that I also don't have in the same hand tremendous joy mm. and like a, a a wealth of laughter to engage with. And so much goodness in me and so much goodness in the people that my life bumps it up against. And all those things can exist and, you know, it's, it, they're all sitting there. You yeah. know, it's not like – and there's sometimes where, like, one of them maybe, like, bubbles up a little bit more to the top. But that doesn't mean that there's still not another one sitting there, you know. And, and you know, it works the same way, you know, that, like, you know, I got this joy. But, like, it doesn't behoove me to ignore that, like, there's still – sadness and sorrow sitting mm. there as well. Um, but it, for me, the, the way that I think I am able to maintain that, that hope, you know, that it is rooted in kind of like carrying these things together. And like at my heart, I do, there's been a wealth of like things that constantly try to prove different to me, but I do believe in the beauty of what it means to be a human. Uh, I think we go about it wrongly often, <laughs> particularly these days. Uh, we make it more difficult than it needs to be, but that there is a beauty to being, not even just to being strictly human, but there's a beauty to getting to be a human in the world that we are humans inside of, that we are part of this thing. And the times and the ways in which humanity aligns itself in the spots and places that it fits in sync with how like the world moves with it. You know, that's that's what I find a really beautiful thing. And so it's like I want that. You know, I reach towards that. You know, it's like yeah, I mean there's just like awesome stuff. Can we not just have awesome stuff and make it happen? You know, like it's really fascinating to think about holding all of these things in our hands. And it just reminds me of so many people I've gotten to have conversations with over the last few years who who have this great capacity for joy, but it only comes from a place of having a great capacity for pain. That's why I don't think that people should be spinning, you know, the negative things that happen in their lives into something positive because then you lose the ability to hold both those things at once. Um, I heard somebody once call it, uh, brutal where it's you know it's it's beauty and it's brutal yeah and you're holding them both at once i don't know if i can even go as far to say that like that's a beautiful experience to have that it's like an important experience to have because it's in the midst of that it never feels good yeah but it gives you a more deep human experience and coming back to the poetry side of things i think that poets have always had this unique ability to call that out, to call out the human experience and celebrate it, whether it's good, whether it's bad, you know, perceived good or perceived bad and provide imagery for it so that we don't forget about the experience so that we're reminded of it when we see the things going on in the world. Definitely. For people who are drawn to this conversation and they feel that they want to experience life more fully, they want to experience, you know, all of these things in one hand, they want to do that and they don't want to run from these ideas or they don't want to just veer towards one or the other in the way that you do as a poet. What kind of advice would you give them? Oh man. These days I feel like so, I feel almost like a charlatan that like, I don't know how to give advice like that or my, or untainted thoughts. You know, it's like, there's this really beautiful book of poetry I read last week from Catherine Sullivan. She's, she's a poet here in Portland and she started uh, the press. Yes, yes books. And, um, it's just a really beautiful, beautiful book of poetry. And the thing that's so beautiful about it is that, like, it's filled with all these, like, very just – just all the things in her life and just, like, the day-to-day real-world situations that she experiences with her family and, and those challenges and tribulations. And, you know, there was, like, one poem that that's in the book. That, I can't remember everything in it, but, like, there's this part where she's talking about, like, oh, how she would love to, like, 
be able to just kind of like sit and write about like the wonder of this or the wonder of that as as a, as a poet. But like she's got to deal with this and this and this and all these things like of a household that like some are very large challenges and some are like small challenges, but still like part of this like household. And like I feel like I'm in the first part of that these days, you know, that it's like mm, I get up, I like bike to the coffee shop. I sit there, I just stare out the window, watch the kids walk by, watch the people come in and sell books, drink some coffee, ride or something, get on my bike, go eat some, you know, it's like, it's like this weird, blissful, non-existing existence, you know, that of course, like, allows me to like, be present and observe, you know, <laughs> like, because it's like, I don't have all this other stuff that's saying like, that, that's vying for my attention. Mm. Um, and so that's all to say that like, the best way to do it is just become a full-time poet like me, you know, like, um, <laughs> but you know, I, I think that it's important to fight to find time for oneself amongst all this. And, and I know that that is a challenge but it also doesn't have to be like a lot of time for oneself and it doesn't have to be important time for oneself. You know, like time with oneself is not wasted. You know, it's not like, Oh, you know, like I had this hour where I didn't have to do anything. I had these 15 minutes where I didn't have to do anything and I spin it without like coming to any revelation. I spin it without solving anything. I did it without like, I spin it like not, making anything you know like like that's not necessarily the task at hand you know when you engage with your interior Mm. you know like it's important to just sort of like allow what may happen to unfold um is one thing you know that being said i think it's also important for us to fight to stay engaged with other humans you know like we we do not live in a vacuum we do not live on an island of one. You know, that's, I think, always the the forever human conundrum, you know, that, like, as a human, we'll always be completely alone. And you as a human will always be never alone. You know, it's like both those things are existing in your life at the same time. Holding them both in your hand. Yeah. And you got to fight for both of those. You got you to gotta fight to stay engaged with those around you and you got to fight for your space for yourself um, so that you're not afraid to be by yourself. You're not afraid to be alone. You know, if you can like spend that time in the company of yourself, then like you don't have to be afraid of what that, what unfolds with that. You know, you don't have to be afraid of, of the sadness that comes, uh, the grief that comes, the anger that comes. None of those things are bad things. They simply allow us to like look at the world in a more successful manner. Oh man, that was such a good conversation. I love how Anise sees the world and I feel like I learned so much from spending that time with him and ultimately eating donuts with him. But before we wrap everything up, we are going to hear Anise's live performance of his amazing poem, Shake the Dust. It's from Heavy and Light, an event put on by wonderful nonprofit. I love them to write love in her arms. Ah, it's such a good performance. Here we go. Anise Mojgani, Shake the Dust. Uh, and this one right here, uh, this is for the fat girls. This one is, uh, is for the little brothers. This is for the schoolyard wimps and for the childhood bullies that tormented them. For the former prom queen and for the milk crate ball players. For the nighttime cereal eaters and for the retired elderly Walmart store front door greeters. Shake the dust. This is for the benches and the people sitting upon them. For the bus drivers driving a million broken hymns. For the men who have to hold down three jobs simply to hold up their children. For the nighttime schoolers and for the midnight bike riders trying to fly. Shake the dust. This is for the two-year-olds who cannot be understood because they speak half English and half God. Shake the dust. For the boys with the beautiful, beautiful sisters. Shake the dust. For the girls with those brothers who are going crazy. 
those gym class wallflowers. And the 12-year-old's afraid of taking public showers. For the kid who's always late to class because he forgets the combination to his lockers. For the girl who loves somebody else, shake the dust. This is for the hard men who want love, but know that it won't come. For the ones the amendments do not stand up for, for the ones who are forgotten, for the ones who are told to speak only when you are spoken to, and then are never spoken to. Speak every time you stand so you do not forget yourself. Do not let one moment go by that doesn't remind you that your heart beats 100,000 times a day and that there are enough gallons of blood to make every one of you oceans. Do not settle for letting these waves settle and for the dust to collect in your veins. This is for the celibate pedophile who keeps on struggling, for the poetry teachers and for the people who go on vacations alone, for the sweat that drips of a Mick Jagger singing lips and for the shaking skirt on Tina Turner's shaking hips, for the heavens and for the hells through which Tina has lived. This is for the tired and for the dreamers. For those families that will never be like the cleavers with perfectly made dinners and sons like Wally and the beaver. This is for the bigots, for the sexists, for the killers, and for the big house jail sentenced cats becoming redeemers. And for the springtime that somehow seems to always show up after every single winter. This is for you. This is for you. Make sure that by the time the fisherman returns, You are gone, because just like the days, I burn at both ends, and every time I write, every time I open my eyes, I'm cutting out parts of myself just to give them to you. So shake the dust and take me with you when you do, for none of this has ever been from me. All that pushes and pulls and pushes and pulls, it pushes for you. So grab this world by its clothespins and shake it out again and again and jump on top and take it for a spin. And when you hop off, shake it again. For this is yours. Make my words worth something. Make this more than just another poem that I write, more than just another night that sits heavy above us all. Walk into it. Breathe it in. Let it crash through the halls of your arms like the millions of years of millions of poets coursing like blood, pumping and pushing, making you live, shaking the dust. When the world knocks on your front door, clutch the knob tightly and open on up and run forward into its widespread greeting arms your hands in front of you, fingertips trembling, though they may be. That poem you just heard was in Nis Mojgani's live performance of his piece, Shake the Dust. It's performed at Heavy and Light, which is an amazing event put on by the good folks at To Riot Love Under Arms. I love that. I actually watch that fairly often, um, and I'm glad that you all got to hear it. That was such a good conversation. I just love how Anise sees the world. I feel like I learned so much from spending that time with him and getting to have that conversation. I'm so glad we got to share it. More than anyone else I know, Anise models this crazy, beautiful idea that we have a huge capacity for joy alongside our huge capacities for pain. I love that part of our conversation where he said this, I hesitate to seek to find silver linings. What works is to recognize that I have tremendous sadness and anger and grief inside me. But that doesn't mean that I don't have, in the same hand, tremendous joy, a wealth of laughter to engage in so much goodness within me. And all those things can exist. They're all sitting there. And he gets it. He just gets what it's all about. And I really resonate with this idea and hope that you did too. A piece of advice that Denise has often given to young artists in the past is to observe everything around you and store up its inspirations so that you don't have to wait for inspiration to arrive. It's simply and hopefully always present. You can find Denise Moshgani and more of its inspirational art on Twitter and Instagram, as well as opportunities to purchase his poetry through your local bookstore or on Amazon. His website is thepianofarm.com. If you're new to Sounds Good, we would love for you to stick around. If you enjoyed this conversation with Anise, you'd also love our past episodes with Chantal Martin and Devin Allen. 
two artists and deep thinkers that I also deeply admire. You can find those episodes and all of our other episodes on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts. This podcast is created by me, Brandon Harvey, as a part of Good, 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 a community that believes in the power of celebrating good news and becoming good news. You can also get lots more hopeful stories on social media by following us everywhere at Good, Good, Good Co. We also create a beautiful quarterly newspaper that celebrates the people, ideas, and movements that are changing the world for the better. You can and should order it today. Check it out and see what else we do at Good, Good, Good at goodgoodgood.co. And on that note, that is a wrap for this week's episode. It's your turn to go out and do some good this week. And we'll be back next week with another inspiring story from an incredible person leaving an impact on the world. Sound good? 